Welcome to Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, welcoming you to another great adventure in God's Word. So as you open to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, here are some introductory thoughts from our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McKee. We welcome you aboard the Bible bus today as we continue our safari through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. It bears a similarity to the book of Proverbs because there are many Proverbs given in Ecclesiastes. But here again, it has a message for the young. The last chapter will bear down on this. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. And we believe that young people today are listening to the Word of God and that the Spirit of God is changing their lives. And I want to share with you two letters that reveal that. And both of them are remarkable, this first one especially. It comes from Mesa, Arizona. I am 21 years old, and I have been a hypocrite ever since I can remember. Since starting to listen to your program regularly, I have started studying my Bible every day. I can actually feel myself being born again. It is a good feeling. I am getting rid of my bad habits. I am, for the first time in my life, placing my life in the hands of God. I no longer fear and worry. I feel safe and secure for the first time in a long time. Now, may I say to you that there be some that would take exception to the statement that this party makes that they feel themselves being born again. But I rather like that because I'm of the opinion that it doesn't happen all of a sudden. Some of us came into this world quite suddenly. Some of us got here maybe before the nine months, but others were a long time in getting here. And so the new birth is, I think, similar to that. Now we're hearing a great deal today about the new birth, or being born again. In fact, the term is being banded about, and many are using this term, and then they define it in their own terms of what they think that it means or what they want it to mean. And very frankly, some of the definitions do not conform to the Bible. Now, I think that all of us must understand that since the Lord Jesus is the first one to use the term and that since he's the one that gave it and defined it, that we should at least follow him in this particular case. Now, he said, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, many of us believe that the water is the water of the Word of God. It's so used all the way through the Scripture in both Old and New Testament. And we believe that the water is the Word of God, and it's the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God. And you'll notice that there's no human instrumentality mentioned, because as far as the new birth is concerned, or being born again is concerned, only the Spirit of God, taking the Word of God, can produce the new birth. 
And that's the way the Lord Jesus put it. And he made it very clear that it has nothing to do with reforming the old nature. He said that that which is born of the flesh, it's flesh. It'll always be flesh. You can improve it. You can educate it. I don't know about you, but I was born very ignorant. I didn't even know my ABCs when I was born. I had to learn them. And then I had to be taught manners. My mother used to have a great problem with me of teaching me manners. Well, the old nature can be improved, but it can't be changed. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What a tremendous statement. And let's keep it that way today. And we're rejoicing to see what's happening in the hearts and lives of many young people. Now, the second letter... It comes from a place in the Hawaiian Islands, and I think it's make a kilo, make a kilo in the Hawaiian Islands. And this party writes, I have been listening to your program on KNDI for about three years, and I would like to get on the Bible bus because through your teaching I have found Jesus Christ, and it gave me a new life. And through that three years, I have learned that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, again, may I say, this is a little different way of expressing what's happened to this individual. This individual, I think, has been born again. And I judge from the letter, I only give you an excerpt, I judge from the letter that it must be a young person. So, again, may I say that the Word of God today and that means all of it is reaching in and touching the hearts of multitudes and bringing them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, strengthen and encourage us through this teaching, and then stir the hearts of those who need to respond to your Spirit's prompting today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Here's our study of Ecclesiastes 3 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, friends, as we come today to the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, we're seeing that Solomon is making here another experiment in life. He's trying everything. He's pulled out all the stops and trying everything that is under the sun. That is, that's man-made, that men attempt to do to see if they won't bring satisfaction in life. Let me read now some verses here that reveal this attitude that you are to just take whatever comes now. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. 
Now, that is the viewpoint as it is expressed. A great many say, take life as it comes. There is a time to get and a time to lose. So you put up so much money and played the stock market, and you lost. Well, that's the way it was to be. There's a time to win, a time to lose. And you were a traveling man away from home, and this woman, she was easy to get, and you invited her up to your room. Well, after all, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Something came along, I see nothing wrong in that. That's the philosophy of life today. It's fatalism. It's looking at life like that. Now, that is expressed in these words here. Let's move on here. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he labor? What's the use? Why fight it? If you can't fight City Hall, join them. You hear these cliches banded about among men, especially godless men in the business world. This is the way they operate. Many of them make money on this basis. None of them are happy men. They're filled with joy. They're difficult, I think, to live with. I imagine their wives have a real problem. And they're never rejoicing. They have the cocktail of evening. They become sociable for about two or three hours. After that, it's better to stay clear of them. That is the mood of America today, fatalism. That is the way that many people face life. That's the way they look at it. Now, verse 10, I've seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of man to be exercised in. And I look about me, this man says, and I see people in trouble everywhere. And so if I've escaped a little of it, I just consider myself lucky. That's all. Now, he goes on, verse 11, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Now, God has let man put the world in his heart, that he might see that there's still room for something else, and that the world can never fill his heart here. And a great many men start out, that's the philosophy. I'm going to get all that I can. Life is an orange, and I'm going to squeeze it for all it's worth. And I'll get all that I can. Now, Solomon got the big half of it. He said it didn't satisfy him at all. Now, let's move on. I know that there's no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. Oh, and there's another group in this crowd, the do-gooders. And said to me on a plane, well, he says, I think a man ought to do the best he can, do good. He says, that's what I try to do. <laughs> and I tell you, that fellow wasn't doing very much good, but that was his philosophy of life. Verse 13, And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It's the gift of God. <laughs> and this fellow said, well, I see nothing wrong in drinking. I see nothing wrong in this at all. And from his viewpoint, it was. And this is fatalism. This is the philosophy of men today. Now he says here in verse 14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. And now they talk about God's will as primary. But you see, with this viewpoint, 
the man says, well, if I'm elected, I'll be elected. And I just work on that way of living. If it's not God's will for me to be saved, I won't be saved. You see, fatalism leaves no place for the mercy and the grace of God. And fatalism said God does not hear and answer prayer. You see, it's providence, it's grace, and it's mercy, and God's love that makes life exciting and brings joy into it and gives peace to the human heart. Now, we come to another philosophy here at verse 16, and we call it egoism or egotism. It's excessive love of self, and it actually is the individual self-interest. And that is the summum bonum of life. And some of these people are really very good folk, by the way. But they recognize this. Now, will you notice what he says here? That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there in the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. Now, what he's saying here, all men are wicked. Actually, you can't trust anybody. That's what he's saying here. And this is a cynical view of the human race, but I have to confess that it is rather accurate viewpoint of the human race. Now, he goes on in this vein here. I said in mine heart, and this is verse 17, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Now, that's not very encouraging. Now, read verse 19 of chapter 3 here. For that which befalleth the sons of man befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. And go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all return to dust again. Now, I'm sure that you recognize that there are several cults that build on this statement, but you must remember this is the viewpoint of man under the sun. This is the viewpoint of the man who's living for himself, self-interest, and that the summum bonum of life is to live for yourself, to enjoy life. And that's the reason that men get involved in some good projects. A great many men, they get interested in athletics. Nothing wrong with that. And they give themselves to that. And then there are others that get interested in art, and others in literature, and others in music. And they give themselves to these different things. Now, you can see that this is certainly a very selfish viewpoint. This view does not accept, therefore, the optimist's conclusion. You see, evolution says that man was a beast, but that he now has become a man. Now, egoism or egotism or self-interest says that man is a beast, 
And this viewpoint causes the individual, you see, to despise others. And it's the thing that produced the caste system in India and the class system in the rest of the world. It's the thing that has built ghettos. This is the thing that leads to vanity, that makes a man say, I'm better than that man. And he actually believes that he is. And that, after all, we are all going to one place and we've all become dust. Now, we're speaking here of the body, and very frankly, here, this is a very pessimistic viewpoint. You're just like an animal. When you die, you die. And that's it. And I heard a man say, he says, why, man's just like a dog. When you die, you just die. And that's all in the world that life is. Well, that's when a man's living for himself and himself alone. And he's adopted a very selfish, very narrow viewpoint, actually, of life. Or he can stretch that out and become interested in the arts, become interested in these things today, give himself to these things and totally ignore everything else and say, well, after all, why, we are just going to end as a beast and that is something that, well, makes me want to live for myself right now. And may I say to you, it's that type of teaching, and it's in our schools today. Evolution is actually a form of it, although it says man was a beast, and this says man is a beast. It's just owing about your time periods and that you're going to die like a beast. You have no soul or spirit at all, and that's the way that this viewpoint looks at life, and as a result, what happens? Well, you come out, friends, with a viewpoint that causes you to live for yourself. Because after all, you're just like an animal. And you watch an animal. I watched a bunch of little kittens the other day. And believe me, do you think they had any regard for the other? Why, they played together. Well, when it was something to eat, they didn't mind pushing one little fella out. And the owner of the cats had to feed that little kitten. His brothers and sisters would have let him starve to death. And perfectly willing to. Why? Egoism is their philosophy of life, too. And you see the same thing about little birds in the nest. I tell you, each little fellow is taking care of himself. That is a viewpoint. Man's an animal. And that's the reason today that man's beginning to react like an animal because he's taught in school. Our schools are teaching that man's an animal. Well, then if you are a brother, then live like an animal. And that's this philosophy of life. Now, will you notice here verse 21? Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Now, what he's saying here is, actually man's different from the beast. For the spirit of man goes upward, and the beast goes downward, because he's just an animal. Wherefore, I perceive that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion, for who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? In other words, this life is all. This is indeed a modern teaching. You can call it anything that you want to. It's the only thing that's worthwhile is for man to identify himself with his environment, his works down here, actually with the animal world, and to live like an animal. And, by the way, this is the ancient version of the hippie and yippie philosophy. 
and it came out of our schools, of course. Now will you notice chapter 4, for it continues this. He says here, verse 1, So I return and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Does this sound to you like any political philosophy today? The egotist, he rebels against the establishment. He's opposed to it. And that whatever exists, whatever is the ruling, is always oppressing the poor. And the poor, very frankly, always get a bad deal. That's no question about that. But that they're being oppressed. And here's where your protest movements all begin at this particular juncture. Now we'll listen to him again. He says, Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. You've heard that one. I'd rather be dead than alive. I wish I were dead. Better to be read than be dead is just turning it around, looking at it the other way. He rebels against the establishment, and he at the same time wishes that he was dead. Death seems to hold no terror for him whatsoever. Now will you notice, he goes on to say, Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. And here's the other side of the coin. I wish I hadn't been born. It's better for the ones coming along not to be born. Then verse 4, Again I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. And the interesting thing about this is he protests against the establishment, against the oppressor, against that which is wrong. But what about it? What about the man doing right? What about the man who is trying to? Well, that's no good either. (laughs) You're wasting your time in that field. I tell you, this is really a pessimistic viewpoint of life. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. What does that mean? Is he cannibal? No. It means that actually he's not willing to do anything to protect himself, won't work for himself. We have developed quite a society like that today. Won't everything given to him? Now will you notice verse 6. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Now, very candidly, you get in some good points here. I would say this is a very good point. This man here, of course, he wants to do his own thing. But it's better to have it that way than to have it the other. Verse 7, Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. Any way you go, it's wrong. There's no way out. This is the worst kind of pessimism. No wonder that in Berkeley there have been more suicides in that area than in any other place in the country because we've seen the old sower, we've seen it break out with corruption and ooze out this corruption, what's back of it? Well, this philosophy that leads to suicide, all of it, it comes to naught. Verse 8, there is one alone, there is not a second, yet he hath neither child nor brother Yet is there no end of all his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor, and bereave my soul of good, 
This is also vanity. Yea, it's a sore travail. And what a picture this is. Why, even if you work for somebody and you help them, you're just wasting your time. And he says, now two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Now, he's giving reasons why you ought to team up with somebody. And this is the only reason. Why? Well, it's going to be a pretty selfish reason. You knew that. Two's better than one because they have a good reward of their labor. You'll have more by teaming up with someone than you would if you did it by yourself. So that's the reason you should team up. This is the philosophy of life that's known as egotism. We leave off there and pick up next time at verse 10 of chapter 4 of the book of Ecclesiastes. May the Lord richly bless you, my beloved. Be sure to join us next time for more great teaching in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Until then, to be in touch, call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE or visit ttb.org. Today's study is always available, free to stream or download, thanks to the generous and faithful investments from your fellow Bible bus travelers. Just go to ttb.org or download our app to listen again anytime. As always, we'd love to know what's God teaching you.